Here begins the ninth verse of the seventh chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Here begins the 28th verse of the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good day, good afternoon, good evening. My name's Rob Forsyth. 
I, I know many of you, but you, some may not. I normally work at the other end of the day here at uh, St. Philip's. I'm the 8.30 a.m. pastor or minister. Yes, we have church at 8.30 here. You know that? Maybe you don't. Well, it's a great pleasure to be able to with, with, with you this evening and uh, to minister to you. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Well, today's title in the last of our series, Grace in the Life of Jesus, uh, the official title is Grace and the King's Entry. Although, as we'll see, it probably should better be titled Grace and Rejection. Grace and Rejection. So far in the series, we've been emphasising the, the wonderful positive side of grace, God's grace in Christ, although last Sunday we were faced with a darker reality in the, if you were here, hearing about the elder son in the parable of the prodigal son. The reality is that God's grace for all its wonderful offering of life and peace can be rejected. And the tragedy of this story today is that it is rejected and is rejected at the very heart of God's dealing with Israel. Today's sermon on Luke 19 concerns events of the Sunday before what became Easter Day, when Jesus made a staged entrance into Jerusalem. It's often called Palm Sunday, although careful listeners to the reading just then, excellently read by the way, will have noted that Luke never mentions palms, the only one of the Gospels that doesn't. So this is non-Palm Sunday. But our text describes a journey not a long journey, just three and a bit kilometres, but a significant journey. And I'd like you to turn to page nine of the order of service uh, to, to, to find the map there. That's the city of, that's, this is by the way the time of Jesus. There's a city of, of Jerusalem on the left. I'll, I might come back to this later, but you'll notice you can't help but notice how largest part of the area is the temple complex. This is not so much a city with a temple as possibly a temple with a city. You'll also notice that unlike our cities, Jerusalem is sharply delineated. That's because, like cities of the time, Jerusalem is surrounded by strong city walls as a defensive measure. Now move to the east a little, to the right, and down you'll see then the Kidron Valley. This uh, is quite a steep drop from the city, quite a steep drop. And then if you go again further east, you'll see on the other side of the Kidron Valley, a mountain ridge. It was called the Mount of Olives for the simple reason it had many olives on, farmed on its slopes. Now Jesus' journey is from the east, Bethany and Bethpage, Bethany means place of figs, Bethphage means place of unripe dates, apparently. Up the reverse slope of, of the Mount of Olives, over the top, then down the south steep side, down into the Kidron Valley, and then across up again, and probably entering the city by means of gates, you still see them today actually, in the wall, below where the temple is, then up, I suspect, internal stairways, maybe the way it is. Well, let's take the journey with him. We start at Luke 19, 28. After he had said this, Jesus went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. 
And in describing that journey up to Jerusalem, Luke gives us four indicators of where we are, waypoints, if you like. There's one at verse 29. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. There's one at verse 37. When he came near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. There's one at verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city. And finally, 45, when Jesus entered the temple. So I want to move through each of these four movements. And then at the very end, there's going to be a do-it-yourself application. So keep your wits about you. Ask yourself, why I would, how would this story apply to me, right? Give it, do it yourself application at the end. First phase, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. As Jesus approaches these little villages, he prepares to stage a big entry into Jerusalem. He procures an unridden colt to ride on. That's not because he doesn't want to walk. It's because he wants to say something saying something which echoes and resonates with his, Israel's history. What does it echo and resonate? Well, it echoes and resonates, for example, the way Solomon, the David's son, uh, went on a similar journey down from the Mount of Olives on a colt, on his father's mule, in fact, and was proclaimed king, 1 Kings 1, 38, 39. It echoes and resonates with a prophecy made long after Solomon of a future king, in fact, made when there was no king anymore, but of a future king, Zechariah 9.9. 9. I'll read it. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the file of a donkey. Jesus' staged action echo and resonates with a, th a strong royal theme of someone coming in procession to the city of Jerusalem to claim kingship. And those who are with him do understand that. Verse Luke 19.35, we read, they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks upon it, and put, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. That may seem strange to you, but it's an echo of the installation of another king, a 9th century king in the north, northern kingdom of Israel in 2 Kings 9.13. Quote, they quickly put their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So just like the, the, the arrival of a triumphant ruler for his throne, Jesus stages this journey. Stages this journey. Second part. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, this is over the top of the ridge and quite a steep decline into the Kidron Valley. And as he goes over the top, so his disciples, they go over the top in another way. I read it. Verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. His disciples, there's a whole crowd, not just the twelve, a whole crowd of them, who, who we're told have seen Jesus' miracles, literally his deeds of power, and they conclude that this journey is the climax of all that's gone before. Not just for Jesus personally, but for what's, what's going on, what he represents. After all of the gloom and doom of that day, now the Lord is finally, with his acts of power, bringing light and peace to him through the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This also has echoes and resonances with, with a great entrance in the past. 
some 176 years beforehand. In 146 BC, after a terrible time of oppression and what you might even call religious genocide by the Greek Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes IV, the Jews finally defeated their enemies. This is the period between the end of our Old Testament and beginning of the New. Let me read how the entry of Simon the Maccabee and his victorious Jewish forces into Jerusalem is described in the first book of Maccabees. The Jews entered it with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. And that that rededication of the temple which occurred is still commemorated by Jews today, the feast of Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights held in December every year. Notice, by the way, and Jesus' entry procession echoes that great glorious arrival. Notice, by the way, in the book of Maccabees, the mention of palms, which the other Gospels also mention, but for reasons that I do not understand, Luke doesn't. So imagine this great glorious ceremony coming down the hill. However, not all are as impressed with this over-the-top enthusiasm or its overtones and echoes. The first negative note is heard in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus will have none of it. I tell you, he says, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And by the way, it's an area, very rocky, stony area. In other words, nothing can stop. Nothing. It's as if nothing can stop the enthusiastic acclamation of Jesus in his triumphal progress. Or, or, or is there? Third, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city. As he approached Jerusalem and finally gets his first glimpse at the city, coming down the hill and perhaps around a corner, things come to a head in a way we haven't been expecting. But before I tell you how, let me ask this question. As Jesus comes over the brow of the hill and gets his first glimpse of the city across the Kidron Valley, what does he see? What's it like that he sees? I'll tell you what he sees. He sees the temple of the living God, the God of Israel, after it has been its rebuilding by Herod the Great. He sees what was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. Let me tell you something about it. A huge stone platform, 400 metres by 300 metres, 150 metres from the floor of the Kidron Valley on the southeast corner. Huge. All the way around this this, uh, courtyard is a large corridor of of, uh, colonnades, columns with a roof. The columns are 12 metres high, between them 15 metres, all the way around. In the middle of the open space inside is another raised wall platform with gates covered in gold and silver. Inside that, a huge stone altar, 6.7 metres high, 22.5 metres square. A cricket pitch square. At the heart of it all, behind that high altar, is the holy place, the sanctuary, 
a roof building 45 metres high, 29, 7 metres long, open at the front with a gate covered in gold, and above which we read hung a golden grape bunch as big as a man. Now, what was it like to see that building, that complex of buildings, from a distance as Jesus did that day? Well, we know because another man did and wrote about it. Josephus, the, Roman, the Greek, Greek a Roman historian, who had seen it with his own eyes, describes the experience in his book about the War of the Jews. Here, here he is talking about that tall building, the sanctuary at the centre. I quote, and this, by the way, is the front of your order of service in the quote section. Viewed from without, the sanctuary had everything that could amaze either mind or eyes. Overlaid all around with stout plates of gold, in the first rays of sun it reflected so fierce a blaze of fire that those who endeavoured to look at it were forced away to turn away as if they looked straight at the sun. To strangers as they approached, it seemed in the distance like a mountain covered in snow, for any part not covered with gold was dazzling white. But as Jesus looked at what seemed like a mountain covered in snow and the city behind it, he openly wept. The Greek word used for weeping is not the word for quiet sobbing, it's for open, loud weeping. He openly wept. Why? Isn't he looking at the place where God's presence dwells amongst his people? Isn't this where the daily sacrifices and services are offered to him? Isn't this the place of, as it were, the interfaith, interface rather, between Israel and Israel's God, the, the living God, where his blessings are to be found, as well as a centre of political power and national identity? Why, why weep when you see it? He weeps because he loves it, yet he knows it is doomed. He loves it, but he knows it is doomed. The key are his words in verse 43, 44. Let me read them in full. Jesus addresses the city as if it were a person as he weeps. If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. He weeps because of the failure of the city to recognise the great moment that was taking place right there and then. If you, even you, had only known on this day, what would bring peace? There was a moment when Israel was off, when, sorry, Jerusalem was offered peace. They didn't recognise it. Or as he says at the end of verse 44, you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. The Greek literally here means the time of your visitation. But the time of God's coming to you is not a bad translation. What is Jesus talking about? What is it on this day that would bring you peace? When was the time of their visitation? Can you work it out? Can you work it out? Here's Jesus coming down the hill, consciously with echoes of procession of a royal figure coming 
to his throne? The one who, if we'd been reading Luke's Gospel by this time, we'd know, was the one in whose whose God's saving reign, or kingdom of God, was personified in him. In God acting with acts of power, bringing peace and life in him. Sure, the disciples can see it, but not, not those who run things in the temple, not those who run things in the city. They can't see it. The irony is palpable. The whole reason d'etre of this building was to serve and represent the presence of God, the living God. But when he comes to them, when the Lord returns to Zion, they don't recognize it at all. And that is why the city and the temple are doomed. There is a culpable refusal to recognize. Like the prophet Jeremiah back in the 5th century speaking of the first temple, now Jesus speaks in similar language of the second. In Jeremiah's day, it was the Babylonians. Now it will be other enemies. We need not look far. It is imperial Rome, obviously. Jesus warns them, speaking of what a siege was like of an ancient city, how they'll come around you and put their, put their, bank, their siege banquets around you, encircle you and hem you in, and they'll, they'll just dash you to the ground, you and your children. They'll not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He, speak, he, he speaks, of, in other words, of the ruin of all that he sees. And that is why he weeps. He weeps at the rejection of grace. At the rejection of grace. And finally, verse 44, the fourth movement, when Jesus entered the temple. When Jesus enters the temple, he drives out those selling animals and birds for the sacrifices. With these damning words, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. There are two quotes from scripture here, which the NIV indicates to us by putting little quotation marks within Jesus' own quotes. You may notice it there in the text. The first is, my house shall be a house of prayer. That's God speaking in Isaiah 56, 7, saying that one day his house will be a place where even foreigners can worship him. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But the second, you have made it then a robbers, is God speaking in Jeremiah 7, verse 11, where the Lord condemns the way in which 5th century BC Israel have used the temple as a kind of hideout from God. A bandit's hideout. A den of thieves. Listen to God speaking in Jeremiah 7, 9-11. See if you can get what, what the Lord is saying to Jeremiah and therefore what Jesus means by using this text. The Lord is speaking to Israel. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe through all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? Is that what you've made of the house of prayer? 
That's what Jesus says they've done. Some have called Jesus' words the cleansing of the temple. I, I, I don't. It's the condemnation of the temple. It's speaking its doom. And then we come to the end of our journey. We read that Jesus now uses part of that massive courtyard as his teaching base. Verse 47. Every day he was teaching at the temple. But, the chief, uh, but there's still the resistance, the refusal. But the chief priests and teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. The rejection of grace. But we read in verse 48, they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. At this point too, we are, as it were, also left hanging. But we need to know there were two very dramatic sequels which occurred after this event, two profoundly important. One within seven days, within a week. One within a generation, within 40 years. The one that took place within a week, the dramatic sequel, is one which changes everything. It'll be our focus next Thursday night here at St Philip's at 8 o'clock. And then again, it'll be our focus on Friday morning at 9.30 and again on Sunday evening at 6 o'clock as well next Sunday as we mark and commemorate this profound series of events. Come back and find out what, what it was. It was the triumph of grace. The other sequel that took place took place within a generation. If these events are about the year 3033, it's 40 years later or so, the year 70. In 66, the Jews staged a revolt against the Romans and it actually worked for a while. They actually kicked them out. But the Romans returned three years later with a massive army and by April, in the year 70, Jerusalem was besieged. A terrible siege. And by August, the Romans had breached the walls, poured into the city, massacred much of the remaining population. The temple was burnt and destroyed. Much of the city was demolished and the walls pulled down. Survivors were taken away in slavery. Jesus' words had come tragically, were tragically fulfilled. Many years ago, on my very first visit to Jerusalem, I went to see the temple site. It's still there. Not all gone, there's still bits there. And down in the southeast corner, you can actually still see some of the stones still in the wall of Herod's time. So not every stone was literally destroyed. But if you look around on the side, you can see half buried in the ground these massive great stones. They've fallen down and they've been covered up over, over the thousands of years. There they are lying there, turned over. It's quite, quite, quite a sight. When I was looking at them, a Jewish tour group went by. Um, I think, I, I can't remember, I think they were speaking English. I think they were some school kids, actually. The, I, could, I got the, either heard or got the sense the guide was speaking about this terrible tragedy that had befallen their nation. And I understood what they meant. I understood exactly what he meant. But I thought of something different. There in front of my very eyes, there concretely, there standing there, was the evidence of Jesus' prophecy fulfilled. Right there and then. It's the one physical thing remaining on the earth of Jesus' words coming true. It was the rejection of grace. 
the rejection of grace that had led to disaster. And that is the journey today. Now, the do-it-yourself application. Can you think of how you might apply this text to your life? Do you need to be told? Really? Let me, let St Paul, in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1, have the final word. As God's co-workers, he writes, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Not to receive the grace of God in vain. Let's pray. Father, we pray you that by your grace, you may prevent us from rejecting your grace. Take away from us all that hardens our heart, that makes us insensitive to you and your word, that locks us up against you, which distracts us and hardens us. Open us up again, we pray, to the life-giving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives, in whose name we make this prayer. Amen.